Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Jeff Perlman in just a few moments. First of all, our play-by-play call of the day. The Falcons beat the Giants last night at the Mercedes-Benz Dome. First down and 10. Ryan, another play fake. Matt going to gun it deep. Marvin Hall running a blur. Caught it. Touchdown, Atlanta. Janoris Jenkins couldn't get his RPMs up enough to catch Marvin Hall. Old friend Wes Durham with the call on the Falcons radio network. And the Giants today then dealt Eli Apple to the New Orleans Saints for a four and a seven. All right. I found this book to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, Jeff Perlman, a New York Times best-selling author. The book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. And, Jeff, as a courtesy to you, we did not have you watch an eight-minute video before you came on the show. <laughs> I don't have to your tellers. That's right. <laughs> before coming on this program, you must sit through an eight-minute episode explaining why this show is so fantastic. Exactly. That's what I do. See, you can tell I read the book. <laughs> yeah, I figured that out. Or, or uh, either that or you visited Trump Tower in the 1980s, one or the other. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. you and I may have inadvertently sat through that eight-minute video at some point in the 80s in Trump Tower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to we'll get to the president and former general's owner in a moment. Uh, this I found this book fascinating, and I want to go back. The impetus for us was Mr. Haight telling you there's more to this story. So now in this lifetime, what did you discover in the more to the story that when you wrote your first paper years ago and got that disappointing B plus? That you know, you just never knew before. That that told you how crazy this league was. I didn't know any of it. I knew very little. I was, you know, I wrote it. It was Mr. Height. It was Eric Height, and it was Mayo uh, Pack High School. My senior thesis was a forty-page paper on the USFL, which I gotta think he didn't read. There's no way he read forty pages. Like two weeks left till summer. <laughs> Some snot-nosed eighteen-year-old hands in a forty-page paper on the USFL. I think you're skimming that thing at most. Um, I don't know. I you know I was like a lot of I was a kid of the '80s. I loved the USFL. I loved the yeah, me generals. But and I think I was always. I think the thing for me was I was always fascinated by um, upstarts and the merging of worlds. So like guys like Herschel Walker coming to a new league and Steve Young and Jim Kelly. These guys, you know, youth college stars coming to a new league and then the league dying and those guys going to the NFL. So. I knew very, very days. My knowledge of the USFL was good for a kid growing up in Mayo Pack, New York, but until I wrote this book, I didn't know nearly. When people ask me that question, like, what did you learn? I always feel like saying, the book is, whatever, 350 pages, 349 pages are pretty much what I learned that I didn't know. Right. Uh, what's interesting is uh, I always have felt that the original concept of the USFL, regional 
you know, the Philadelphia Stars were associated with Penn State and so forth. I thought it was a brilliant idea that I thought could have lasted had they gone through with it. Now, John Bassett was obviously a big believer in this model. Uh, tell us a little bit about John Bassett, um, because, you know, he tried the World Football League, and, he, you know, obviously he uh, he's actually one of the few people Donald Trump would listen to. Um, yeah, well, John Bassett, the owner of the Bandits, is sort of the hero. You know, it's interesting. I've had some discussions with people about turning the U.S. into, you know, into a film or a TV show, and they say, who's, well, Donald Trump is by the villain who's the hero. And I really think the hero is John Bassett. He's the owner of the Bandits. He had a world, uh, as you said, world league uh, team in Memphis. Um, he believed in the idea of spring football, slow growth, one or two stars per team, and then you're going to kind of fill out the roster with regional guys. And, and um, he was the best. And the best thing I found this entire book, my, my money, money find, was a letter he wrote to Donald Trump on August 16, 1984, on Tampa Bay Bandits letterhead. He was the owner of the Bandits. Trump was the owner of the Generals. And included my favorite paragraph of all time, which is, you're bigger, younger, and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth the next time an incident occurs where you personally <laughs> scorn me or anyone else who doesn't happen to salute and dance to your tune. He just saw Trump for what he considered him to be, which was a con man. And he would tell anyone who would listen, this guy is a con man. I can't believe we're listening to him. And I, this is going to sound like a political statement, and maybe it is. I think had John Bassett lived, he would be... I don't even know, beyond shocked that the same, because a lot of the same tactics Trump used with the USFL, he really did use in running for the presidency. Um, I don't even think that's a political statement, because if you read about the USFL, you see a very similar playbook. What's interesting, too, is that you talk about getting the one or two stars. Obviously, Herschel Walker, there was not a rule in place in 1980. You had to have... In order to be a guy that um, could go to the NFL early, you had to graduate. Todd Blackledge did, Mike Munchak did from Penn State. Yet Herschel Walker leaves after his third year at Georgia. The irony is, if you're a Penn State fan, um, there is contact with the USFL before the Sugar Bowl, just like there was contact with Mike Rogier before he played the year after. Uh, uh, and by the way, Jay Walter Duncan was the owner of the Generals originally, the, the uh, Oklahoma oil man. How did that process play? How did they get Herschel Walker? Because the NFL wasn't going to touch him. How did they possibly get him to go over? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So, um, like you said, the NFL wasn't taking underclassmen back then. So you had to play your four years of college. And Herschel Walker, after his third year, you know, he's from Wrightsville, Georgia. He's from a very poor family. He won the Heisman Trophy winner as a junior. He won a national championship. Uh, he was, I always say for younger fans, it's almost hard to picture nowadays, he was an iconic, iconic national football player. You know, wouldn't you agree, like, Herschel Walker wasn't just Cam Newton comes along or, you know, Jay Barker. Like, he was a different level. He was a sort of a holy deity of football at the time. Um, well, but let me, let me tell you, I'll give you, I'll give you one that, that will help you on that, that will help the fans. I, I did the pregame show with Joe Paterno before the Sugar Bowl. And I asked him about Herschel Walker, and the guy he compared him to was Jim Brown. Right. Right. And the guy people are comparing Bo Jackson to is Herschel Walker. Like, it's that sort of – those guys were that sort of rare air kind of football players. And he didn't want to go back to college. He, just, he wanted to help his family eat. And the NFL wouldn't touch him. So was, he had a sort of representative, quote-unquote, named Jack Manton, who reached out to the USFL on his behalf. 
called the offices and said, you know, Herschel wants to come out. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of back and forth. We really debated it for a long time. Do we want to do this? Do we want to break this sort of rule about underclassmen? Um, will, the, will the colleges even allow our scouts on campus if we, do, if we do this? And ultimately, they decided to go for it. And the funny thing is, as soon as the USFL got serious about Herschel Walker, the Dallas Cowboys reached out to him and said, if you want to come to the NFL, we can figure out a way to sign you early. And uh, he said, no, I already gave my word to the generals. And uh, the USFL gave him a choice of where he wanted to play. He could pick any team. He could pick New York, New Jersey. Um, and it was a really – it was the first real sort of terrifying moment for the NFL. Uh, and there were many terrifying moments in relation to the USFL. And then no question about that. Yet the generals aren't really great in that first season, and the USFL gets through that first season. But then again, they get an infusion of new ownership. We mentioned Donald Trump buying the New Jersey Generals, and we all because I mean Duncan gets sick of flying back and forth from Oklahoma, and Bill Oldenburg taking over in Los Angeles. Now they're going to go about yeah. the business of trying to sign one of the genuinely nicest people on the planet, and Steve Young with a pro's pro who's not an idiot in any way, shape, or form, at least Steinberg, and Oldenburg treats them like garbage and he still signs. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, um, you know, Young was Young was coming out. He was going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft in 1984. Uh, and the Cincinnati Bengals had a number one pick, and he did not want to go to Cincinnati. Number one, the weather. Number two, the franchise. Number three, Ken Anderson was their quarterback, and he was really good. So he just didn't want to go there. And the USFL comes along, and they tell the USFL fixed their draft up and down. It was all fixed. Like the number one pick that year was Mike Rozier from Nebraska, and the Maulers were given the number one pick after they everyone said they won the lottery. But the truth was, the USFL fixed it because they said they could sign him. Steve Young would have been the number one pick. He was the number one player on anyone's draft board, and he actually went tenth in the draft to the LA Express. Um, and basically, he said they went. They reached out to him and said, "If you could play anywhere, where would it be?" And he said, "Well, I'd play in LA." So they, they made him L.A.'s property, and um, the team was owned by this guy, Bill Oldenburg, who's absolutely, he was an SNL, SNL guy, absolutely crazy, wasn't financially sort of stable, at least not as much as he thought he was. And he, they offered Steve Young this crazy, crazy, it was really a, it was a $40 million deal, but it was really an annuity. So it was $40 million over a bunch of different years. It was kind of a different kind of deal. And um, they go to negotiate the deal at Oldenburg. They go to start finalize the deal at Oldenburg's office in San Francisco. And it's Oldenburg's birthday. And he's this little guy, and he drinks a lot, and he's getting drunker and drunker. And the, Lee Steinberg and Steve Young are downstairs negotiating with Oldenburg's people. And it's taking a long time. And he, he keeps coming down the steps or, or down the elevator. What the hell is going on here? Why is this taking so long? Well, Mr. Oldenburg, it takes a while. An hour later, what the hell is going on? Why is this getting drunker and drunker? Finally, he buzzes down and he says, get Steve Young and Lee Steinberg up here now. And he's completely wasted and he's just waiting. To, he wants it to be done so he can go out with his friends for his birthday. He's, there are all these glass jars atop a bar in his office. He smashes them all. He's in the penthouse. He takes up a, a chair and he's about to throw it out the penthouse window. He's jabbing Steve Young in the chest saying, F you, F, F the Mormon church. Blah, blah, blah. And finally, at 2 in the morning, he kicks Steve Young and Lee Steinberg out of the office. He says, I should have never dealt with you guys. You guys are frauds. And then Lee Steinberg and Steve Young, the most powerful agent in sports, 
and you know the highest, soon to be highest paid player for football, are standing on the street at 2 a.m. in San Francisco, and the next day, a sober and somewhat humble Bill Oldenburg calls and apologizes, and Steve Young consults with a bunch of people and decides he should still take the money, and he does. <laughs> Uh, one thing Crazy. that it would be, you know, history is a great teacher of, of any lesson. The USFL took the immediate cash and went from 12 to 18 teams. So they took the immediate expansion yeah. cash, which is a nice infusion. But what did that do to yeah. dilute the league? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, they didn't do very good background checks on some of their owners. So uh, they did a few things that were really stupid. Number one, like... They went to Tulsa. Tulsa is the best example. The Oklahoma Outlaws, who had great helmets, great uniforms. Doug Williams is their quarterback. The USFL sometimes just did the worst background checks ever. Um, the Tulsa franchise was going to be in San Diego. And at the last minute, the stadium authority in San Diego would not let them play at uh, what later became Qualcomm Stadium. So they decided to go to Tulsa. And the University of Tulsa had reported that their football team had averaged 30,000 fans per game the year before. So the, the ownership group thought, all right, we'll go to Tulsa. And it turns out they were just lying. Like, they literally just made that number up. They averaged about 17,000. So the outlaws come there, and they're expecting these huge crowds because they didn't do any research into their research, and they can't draw anyone. The, uh, they moved to San Antonio. They play in a converted high school stadium called the Alamo, Alamo Stadium. The owner is this guy, Clint Mangus, is complete fraud, oil, and gas guy. Um, <laughs> It's the Gunslingers are the greatest franchise of all time. They, yes. uh, their general manager was a Korean War vet whose only prior management experience was running a feed store. Their coach had last coached Texas A and I eight years earlier. He was in early onset dementia, and he only had seven fingers because three of them were lost in a lawnmower accident. And he coached from the stand next to his wife because he thought he had a better view. The uh, the management they signed their star was was Greg uh, Neuheiser, the quarterback from UCLA, yep. and are only on before games started. They had one of the one of the guys asked Rick, "What do you think we should do? How should we provide the visiting teams their uniforms for the games?" Like they actually didn't understand that teams <laughs> come with their own uniforms. It was my favorite. I think my favorite is they didn't. Um, they were super super cheap, and the field was basically a thin layer of turf over cement. And they used industrial spray paint to spray their field instead of sort of skin-friendly. So players would slide on this field, and they would get these huge skin burns, but the, the paint would rub off into the burns. So the burns were bad enough as is, but there would be, there'd be paint infecting the burns. And the team was so cheap, they would never clean the field. So one guy was telling me, like, it's 100 degrees in San Antonio in the spring. People are getting these infections. You, everyone's getting, like, pustules and big scabs and because they were so cheap, they never cleaned the field. So it was just a walking cesspool of hell. Those are the gunslingers. Uh, in fact, uh, Rick was here about 15 months ago uh, here in State College. And whatever, for whatever reason, during the conversation, the USFL came up and he said, when we got checks, it was a race to the bank to see which ones would get cashed and which ones would bounce. Well, well, let me tell you, my, my favorite player in that whole league is this guy, Greg Fields. Oh, he was a defensive lineman out of Grambling. <laughs> oh, the He's one the that tried to kill I mean, John Hadle. <laughs> yeah, so he, he was cut by the LA Express. John Hadle was the head coach. He punched John Hadle in the face, and the team hired Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace <laughs> to protect John Hadle. And then, only because the USFL is the USFL, and this stuff would only happen there. Even though this is well known that he punched his coach, it's literally in the news. The Gunslingers need defensive line help. So they signed Greg Fields. 
Then they stop paying Greg Fields, and one day he follows the owner home in his Buick, and he has a baseball bat in his trunk. And this guy, Greg Fields, is about 6'6", 280. Little Clint Mangus gets out of his car. There's Greg Fields holding a baseball bat. And he says, I see where you live. I know you have money. I think you should pay me. And Clint Mangus goes inside and comes back out with a paper bag filled with 70000 in cash. And says, are we good? And Greg Fields is never seen again. Oh, all right. Uh, it was uh, no uh, secret that uh, Donald Trump, no matter what he would say to the face of the other owners, he he. I mean, look, what he wanted was an NFL team, and he wanted to go to Shea Stadium, have a stadium built in Manhattan, probably have it named after him, and then be in the NFL. Yep. I mean, he pretty much made no secret of that to people around him. I mean, is that essentially how this story goes, where it, it, it just takes them down, down the, the hole they can't go down? It's very interesting, actually. This has been the weirdest. The simultaneous having a book come out about the USFL while Donald Trump is running for president. And people say, God, you're so biased against Trump. And I always say this, and I really mean this. You could take Sean Hannity, you could take Chris Matthews. Give them a year and a half to research the USFL and see how they feel about Trump as a president because <laughs> everything he did. So he basically he buys a team after, after the first USFL season, and all he does in the lead-up is praise how great the USFL is. I love spring football. It's just wonderful. As soon as he gets a team, we need to move to fall. We need to take on the NFL directly. And he actually does something that I really think passes pro he, um He arranges a meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner at the Pierre Hotel in New York City. Trump pays for the suite. And he says to Rozelle during this meeting, um, I don't give a crap about the USFL. I want an NFL team. What do I have to do to get in the NFL? Especially offering to throw the USFL under the bus in order to get an NFL team. And Roselle knows his Trump's reputation. He knows Trump a little, and he says, as long as I'm the commissioner of this league, as long as my heirs are affiliated with the NFL, I'll have nothing to ever do with it. Um, and I say, and I really believe this 100%, when you see Donald Trump lashing out at the NFL, uh, when you see him you know, complaining about the kneeling and blah, 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 this is a guy who tried buying the Colts in the early 80s and failed. He tried meeting with Pete Roselle and failed. He tried suing the NFL and failed. He tried buying the Buffalo Bills and failed. And he tried buying the New England Patriots and failed. Um, it's just a lifetime of setbacks and shortcomings and rejections with the NFL that started really with the USFL. Uh, I mentioned earlier that history is the greatest teacher. Uh, the USFL had, I mean, look, this is the league that had Reggie White, had Jim Kelly. Of course, how Jim Kelly got the Houston's yeah. another story. But I mean, you know, Herschel Walker. I mean, look, they had and they had Sam some Hill. good football. And not only that, what Houston and the Express had a, a playoff game that you know is one of the greatest games. But like people, very few people didn't see. I watched it; it was awesome, one of the best playoff games yeah. I've ever seen. But in the end, what are some lessons out of this league that is a lesson for anybody who wants to get into sports? I mean, it's a basic life lesson, which is you got to walk before you can run. And they had this nice thing going. You know, they knew they were going to lose money early on. Like, that was all part of it. But it was very repeatedly stated, you're going to lose money early on. We're starting a sports league. But give it patience. Give it time. And, um, you know, John Bassett early on was asked during one of the owner meetings. He said, you were in the World League. What was the, uh, what's the key to survival? He took a drag of a cigarette and he said... Every week, six teams are going to win, and six teams are going to lose. <laughs> and what he was trying to say is, ultimately, yeah. it's just football, and it's take its time and let it develop and let it cultivate itself. 
and they just rushed it and got panicky and followed Donald Trump's lead, and they wanted to take the NFL on directly, which was suicide. I do think it was a great idea. I think if they had given it more time and they just exercised patience, I don't know if it'd still be around, but it would have been around a lot longer. I mean, look, because Tampa Bay was fun with Steve Spurrier. I guess Denver, the first year, actually made a little bit of money, although he's an extremely cheap, cheap owner. That's why he made money. Jacksonville did great. Memphis did great. I mean, if you think about it, if you really think about it, um, the NFL player strike happened in 1987. And I really think if the U.S. of just held out to then, you would have had this sort of football anarchy. I think the NFL probably would have wanted to nip it in the bud. Jacksonville was drawing 40000 a game in the USFL without having a particularly good team. Uh, right. Memphis drew well. Baltimore was, after the Colts left, the Baltimore Stars were the best team in football. Oakland with the Invaders had a really good thing going. Um, Birmingham, a really interesting market. I just think four or five of those teams, maybe six, would have wound up in the NFL. I agree with you. Look, I, to be honest with you, this is an interview that could go on probably for two hours because I have still another 90 minutes worth of questions or at least fun stories <laughs> about the league. I mean, seriously, that's, that's how much I enjoyed the book, you know, the Cliff Stow part oh, and things nice. like that. Because uh, Jack Ham was asking me, Jack's my broadcast partner for Penn State football. Yeah. And, and I said, hey, by the way, Jack, you're in the book. He goes, I am. Because <laughs> Bandazak mentioned him. And, uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, and Cliff Stout's name came up. And of course, Cliff Stout goes back to Pittsburgh and has a day to forget. But after doing nothing in Pittsburgh, you know, what's funny, all those say, years. One thing that's funny about that. One thing that's funny about that. So Cliff Stout, he was the Steelers quarterback when Bradshaw was hurt, and I guess right, 80, right. 82, I think, eighty two or eighty three, eighty two, uh, or maybe eighty three. Anyway, and he has the audacity of signing with the USFL. He hated in Pittsburgh. Like, why wouldn't he sign with the USFL? But it's, Pittsburgh fans are just really sort of bothered that he decides to sign with the USFL. And the Birmingham Stallions come to play the Pittsburgh Maulers, and it's a snowy, freezing day in Pittsburgh. And the fans in Three Rivers just spend the entire afternoon throwing ice chunks at Cliff Stout's <laughs> head. That's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's amazing. Uh, but they were a fun league. They were, every every established league, this will be the final question, because I know I've got to let you go. Uh, every established league gets something from a league that was an upstart. You know, and, and you see it today in the three-point shot in the NBA. You see certain elements of the WHA with the European influence in the NHL and so forth. What did the NFL get from the USFL? Man, ton of things. Number one, a ton of good players, almost 200 players. Four Hall of Famers, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Reggie White, Gary Zimmerman. Um, the run-and-shoot offense, which the Houston Vanders and Jim Kelly, they were running. They went right to Detroit when the U.S. about folded. Uh, the two-point conversion, the coach's challenge, uh, fun end-zone celebrations, wide receivers wearing uniform numbers 1 through 19. I mean, on and on and on and on. And the biggest one that players don't realize, and it's unfortunate, is if you want to, if you look at the salary scale in professional yes. football, it just skyrockets between 1983 and 85. That's when players again, whenever Le'Veon Bell signs with Pittsburgh, whatever he makes, he should at least tip his hat toward the USFL because the reason money exploded in pro football was the USFL's presence. Jeff, it was awesome. And like I said, I could go two more hours, really. I really could. But I appreciate the time that you oh, gave us today because I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did as well. Yeah, thanks for reading the book. That means a lot to me. It really does. Huh?
Oh, it does. This is uh, football for a buck, the crazy rise and crazier demise of the USFL. I already have a color analyst I work with that's going to borrow it, okay, because his name's in it. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. That. Right. All Jeff, right, thanks you. so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, wow, my that was fun. That was fun. I really had a great time with that. All right, bottom of the hour. Uh, did the meeting? Uh, I wonder if the meeting finally broke up in the uh, in the studio. Um, and according to Sean, there was a lot of yelling and screaming. We'll come back with more in a moment as we continue on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Brought to you by our good friends at Sunbury Motors. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. And that caller is exactly right. Be smart, listen on the mark. Absolutely. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Uh, sitting at an undisclosed airport, thinking that Le'Veon Bell might show up. It still isn't there. Neil Kulong, USA Today. Neil, welcome back. Great to have you with us. It's good to be here as always. I, I didn't think they had jet skis out in Johnstown right now, but uh, <laughs> All right. I suppose it's possible. It's Jack Ham's hometown, man. A lot of things happen there. So. <laughs> All right. Um, it's a bye week. So how did you feel about the timing of the bye week? I think it worked out well in the sense that it gave them a chance to sit back and watch three uh, divisional teams lose Yes, uh, with a very beatable team coming up in Week 8 and the possibility of uh, probably the biggest midseason acquisition the team's ever made right on deck. And um, it, it's a it, it's a good time for a lot of things. It's nice that uh, the Steelers kind of by default take over first place with a really weird first place record. But mm-hmm. um, this this is the time of the year they pick up steam a little bit, and you can kind of see why um, the, the the way they seem to go about the early season is almost like an extended preseason in a way. Um, I, I don't mean that necessarily as a compliment. I mean that they need a couple games to kind of figure out what they want to do and what kind of team they are. Right. Um, and, and toward the end of the year, they, they tend to get a lot better. And I think they're, um, allegedly anyway, we'll find out probably the next uh, 24 hours or so, if Le'Veon Bell was serious when he said he was going to show up, quote, after the bye week um, in, in an effort to play in week eight against Cleveland. Now there's a couple uh, – couple qualifications to that that may prevent that from happening for another week but um with it i I think they're in a a good place and i think they did well the last two weeks uh working into the bye and now it's really time to get to work okay yeah i mean regardless of whether bell shows up or not and i'm in the in the camp by the way that says he's not going to show up uh but when you look at i want to go to the defensive side sean davis troy palomalo early in his career struggled a bit because Troy Palomalo could not line himself up correctly. Uh, it took Sean Davis a little bit to do that. Now now you're seeing a little bit of that with Ed, with uh, Edmonds. What does it tell you about the difficulty in this league and what initial positioning means to players out there that I think fans would take for granted? I think above all else, the safety position is all about positioning. Um, you, you have to know exactly where to go um, at the start of the snap, because that's exactly what the quarterback is reading. You ask any of them, their first look is at the safety. Uh, with that, you can't be out of position. You can't be close to the wrong position because NFL receivers, believe it or not, are, are really fast. They can get down the field 
and exploit um, a, a very small window. It doesn't take much for them to be open um, to, for a quarterback to deliver a catchable ball. So if you're a step off, um, you're, you're not really going to be in position to be competitive on a pass. And we've, we've absolutely seen that from Sean Davis, uh, Terrell Edmonds, it, the list goes on of Steelers' safety mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, yeah. uh, probably since uh, at least on the, the free end of it, uh, it, since Ryan Clark, Chris Hope, um, guys that, that uh, probably played in a little less uh, complex of a passing era. It's it's very difficult for them. Uh, the, the safety position has become a lot more challenging, I think, than in the past. But the basics are you have to understand what everyone else in the secondary is doing and where your position um, it, where it materializes, when you're going to have to break into something else. It, defenses today, they're, they're fluid. It really depends on what receivers are doing, and you have to pick up uh, different players breaking into different places. It's not just as simple as you're in cover two, you always play cover two. Defenses rotate, they flex. Um, it, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the safety because the safety, again, that, that's the guy the quarterback is keying off of mm-hmm. uh, for at least a couple of his routes. Yep. So for the younger guys to, to jump in as early as they have, um, you, you kind of expect them to take their knocks. And, and there have been some plays I think that both of them probably could have made um, considering where they were drafted. But it, they, they've held themselves up at times as well, and you kind of hope that uh, – with with a bit more experience, um, they can figure out pre-snap more than anything else, um, be able to diagnose what the opponent is doing and get themselves in a position to, to react to it. I want to talk about two first-round picks, two former first-round picks, Bud Dupree and T.J. Watt. How would you evaluate each of them to this stage? Um, I think both, um, and take this with a grain of salt, I, I think both have been better uh, this season than I thought they were going to be. Um, let, let's start with Dupree. I, I think he's caused a little bit more havoc than I thought that he would. Um, the switch over to that side of the field, I think, is fitting more of uh, the type of player that he's eventually going to become. Um, I, I thought he would be a, a big-time speed rusher considering his athleticism. He seems to play better in strength, kind of holding that, that base side down. Um, they, they flipped that around in a lot of ways uh, within the Steelers' defense where it, it seems more now Watt is going to uh, be more of a pass rusher. He's getting better. Um, he really just didn't have any kind of counter move last year. We've seen him a couple times now put a, a few decent moves on there and, and take out the Cleveland game because the, the Steelers feast on Cleveland quarterbacks like it was Thanksgiving. I'm not going <laughs> to you know, put him in the Hall of Fame because of his performances against the Browns, but he played really well against the Falcons. Um, he, he's done, he did some good things against the Bengals. They got a, a decent amount of pressure um, against what should be a, a what should have been anyway a very fluid, very experienced offense. They, they did a great job in that game. Um, I, I really felt overall uh, the, the two of them have took good strides over uh, the first seven games of this season, and there, there's hope for them yet. You know, I, I, there, there's still a lot more things that they need to work on. And in general, um, you, you really kind of have to take your hat on to the front seven over the last uh, two games. Um, I, I bashed them up and down uh, for the way that they had played uh, when when they were losing and tying every team they played, but. They've, they've done really well the last two games. You, you hope you can keep that up against, uh, once again, um, a, a team that really struggles to protect the quarterback in Cleveland. But um, you, you have to like what you're seeing from them so far. Uh, the quarterback a little bit more often. And they're getting pressure. Uh, more than anything for Watt, I would, I'm, I'm worried about his run contain still a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he tends to take an extra step deep into the backfield when he probably doesn't need to. Um, teams exploit that. But I, I, Dupree has really done a good job on his side, kind of locking things down and, and uh, 
disrupting the quarterback, causing pressure, if not getting sacks. Okay, uh, they do have Cleveland coming up. The baffling opening week tie, and it was baffling. Um, how much better is Cleveland? Because they are the masters of getting to overtime. Yeah, Cleveland knows how to play um, to the opponent's score within four quarters. Uh, you, you have to worry about that. And from there, you have to involve the coin toss. But I, I think we're starting to see more uh, Cleveland getting back to sort of what we thought they were going to be. Um, we we do this every year. The rookie quarterback is awesome. He's, he's lighting the world up. And then he plays a second game, and he plays a third game, and you realize that he's a rookie again. We're starting to see that a bit from Mayfield. And it's not that Mayfield isn't going to be a good player. It's not that Sam Darnold isn't going to be a good player. It's that he's a rookie. And when you lose the element of surprise, in other words, you, you put out enough film, the teams figure out what you're doing, what they're what. Uh, the, the offense is doing with you it's easier to game plan for and the quarterback isn't what you're doing they're going to struggle a little bit more and I think that's what we're seeing from Cleveland now um, they, they can fight, they can compete um, it's not yesterday you know, it, it, it's not the Browns of yesteryear let's put it right. that way we, we're, we're going to see a competitive team but overall the, the, the talent isn't quite there um, it's pretty obvious they're on a two or three year plan but you're going to see them compete. I kind of figured this is what they were going to be like this season. A feisty team. I think they could get to four or five wins, maybe even six. Um, it won't be an easy game for the Steelers to win, but coming off a bye at home, um, the Steelers are, are a pretty tough team to beat. So it, overall, um, you have to like the direction the Browns are going in, but I think now that the Steelers have um, more reps uh, under their belt and they have more film on Cleveland, um, but regardless of the quarterback, they've got plenty to look at now with Mayfield out there. I don't think they're going to have too much of a problem. Um, feel free to use that sound bite for next week if that's not the case. <laughs> I, I still don't quite trust the, the Steelers' pass defense. But they're, they're good enough to beat the Browns. I think it'll be a relatively competitive game, but they, they can swing it out with them. Yeah. Uh, well, we won't play the soundbite back. We've got your back. We don't do that to you. Um, but, well, thank you. Uh, uh, and then one final part, uh, and I think you alluded to this earlier, but injury-wise, they come out of the bye week in good shape, right? Yeah, it looks pretty good. They, they actually might uh, might see Morgan Burnett make the field. Yeah. Um, that's a little odd, but keeping in traditions with uh, yeah. uh, Steelers' uh, free agent signing uh, free safeties, he, he misses most of the first season he's there. So oh, um, He fits right in. You get him out there, and I think you have a different look on defense, and you're a little bit deeper. You don't have to probably play the rookie as often. Um, not to say that Edmonds is, is terrible. He's, he's taking his lumps. He's, he's out there competing, though. He's made a couple plays. But you get Burnett there. Burnett knows what's going on. He can help kind of direct the defense. The whole unit will get a lot stronger if he's able to get out there. Right? And then I think you're really going to start to see – uh, the defense that the Steelers hoped that they were going to have this season, and uh, considering they haven't really had that three-two uh, and one with after the bye with a game against Cleveland at home, you kind of have to like where they sit. Um, we, we've also seen the best and the worst, I think, from the rest of the division. Um, it, 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 this is going to be a battle. This one's going to go straight through to Week 17, I think. And um, you know, the, the bye might actually turn out <laughs> into the Steelers' advantage. I don't know how that that work exactly, but. Um, the Steelers can can win, you know, a, a good majority of the games that they have left um, if they can keep everybody healthy. And, and and Mike even said that at the start of his press conference today. We we have a regularly healthy team. It seems like now, so um, good things are coming. I think. Neil, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Definitely. Thanks for having me.
New Kulong USA Today. We'll wrap things up in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK, brought to you by Sunbury Motors. Forget trick-or-treat. Sunbury Motors Ford is giving you all treats because they have to sell seven new Fords every day now through Halloween. That's right. Now through Halloween, they're doing what it takes to sell seven new Fords every day. Just listen. Ford Escapes from under 20 grand. SMC has 53 2018 Escapes from 19320. Choose from over 61 2018 F-150 trucks starting at 25969. They've sold over 40,000 Ford trucks over the past 103 years and needs to sell seven Fords every day now through Halloween. Buy a 2018 Ford Explorer starting at 31705 SMC has 22 to choose from. There's also 13 2018 Ford Edges from 25390 SMC is making it easier than ever because they need to sell seven new Fords every day now through Halloween. Sunbury Motors Ford in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury. All right, wrapping it up for today. Great to have you with us. Penn State Saturday takes on Iowa, 3.30 the kick, 2 o'clock the airtime. It is uh, a bye week for Bucknell. We'll get Joe Susan back on next week. At our high school football roundtable is coming up on Thursday. And the King will actually be in Sunbury okay, on Friday. He so, will be so, there. So, so guess who caught wind of that? Oh, yeah. is it a four-letter word for disaster? Uh, well, it is a four-letter word, but uh, he goes by the name of Corey. Corey at Brewers Outlet. Oh, I get a text. From, so I get a text Corey. from. So I get a text from Corey. So I get a text from Corey yesterday. He goes. What's this about Steve's brother? Here he's coming to town. What's going on? And I, yeah, that's one hundred percent true. Yeah, he'll be in the area, and he's got Brewers Outlet marked on his bucket list. So I've been yeah. kind of going back and forth with Corey, and I've been going back and forth with your brother to set up what time they'll be getting in the area, and what time <laughs> Kevo will be landing at or near Sunbury. I said, can you give me an estimate? Twelve, twelve thirty, something like that. So. Got a time earlier today from Kevin. Set it up with Corey because because Corey said I want to meet I, I want to meet Steve's brother. I I'd love to meet him. <laughs> True, he said it to me in a text last night. So I said okay, let me get with Kev and we'll um, let, me, let me figure out when he'll be in because I want to make sure Corey you are there when Kev shows up at your place. So so yeah, right around lunchtime on Friday, Kevin Claire will be cruising into Brewers Outlet, and then I get a reply back today from Corey. I'll have samples. <laughs> so now I have a deep concern. He may not show up in the studio by three. He may still be down at Brewer's house. I don't. Can you blame him? I may have to take some remote gear down for him. And he can hang at Brewer's Outlet for the show. <laughs> well, I I can't thank Corey enough. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's that's really nice of Corey to do. Because obviously, you know, I think the world of my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, John, to be honest with you, the Friday thing for him is the greatest thing going. I I can't can't begin to tell you how much Kevin enjoys it. And the funny part, I thought of this yesterday when we had 
Tim Neverett on because we had yeah. so we had Tim on originally back in July of 2016, and yeah, you were did, you I, were on I, location doing a spikes I was, game. I was in Lowell. Yep, you were up in Lowell for a couple of days. We came out of a commercial break, and out of the blue, and you gave me no heads up as we were talking during the commercial break. Out of the blue, yeah, I got an idea. Why don't we have our brother? Why don't I have my brother on? And we'll 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 pick some football games. We'll have some fun. So boom, it just kind of happened spur of the moment. And I've been wanting to do it, okay, because he really does follow this stuff. So it's not like I'm bringing on somebody that doesn't know what he's talking about because he does. All right. And I think in a lot of ways he echoes the the voice of the of the average fan. <laughs> so yeah, he's going to go to the game Saturday. So, and I, I was able to get him inside. So Saturday night may not be the greatest weather day going. So yeah, uh, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. All I know is that I spent last night and then this morning. Stacking two cords of wood. Oh, tis the season. It's coming. Well, I no, I finished it. Oh no, I got it. I got it done. Nice. I I did about mm, an hour last night after basketball practice. And I did about two hours and fifteen minutes this morning. So it took me three hours and fifteen minutes to stack two cords. Now, for those of you out there who have done it, you're saying, man, you're slow. (laughs) (laughs) But I still got it done. That's right. (laughs) It's all sitting there. Wood heater on standby, ready to go. So in other words, I can do probably a little bit more than a half quart an hour. And there's some people out there right now going, man, are you slow. (laughs) But I had to take it from the driveway down to the back, so I had to, I had to use a wheelbarrow to get it back there. That's got a little, yeah, it's a little ways. So, you know, so next time Jack Cam says to me, probably on Saturday, when was the last time you worked out? Hey, I stacked two quarts of wood. Yeah, you worked out all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, today's show brought to you by our good friends at Sunbury Motors. 4th Street at Sunbury, Sunbury Motors Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's War. You're listening to News Radio 1070 WKOK Sunbury. You can hear us anywhere in the world with the Sunbury Broadcasting Corporation app.